Chapter 6 of The Story of a Soul. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Story of a Soul, the Autobiography of St. Therese of Lisieux, translated by Thomas Taylor. Chapter 6 A Pilgrimage to Rome. Three days after the journey to Bayeux, I started on a much longer one, to the Eternal City. This journey taught me the vanity of all that passes away. Nevertheless, I saw splendid monuments. I studied the countless wonders of art and religion. And better than all, I trod the very ground the holy apostles had trodden, the ground watered by the blood of martyrs, and my soul grew by contact with these holy things. I was delighted to go to Rome, but I could quite understand people crediting Papa with the hope that in this way I should be brought to change my mind about the religious life. It might certainly have upset a vocation that was not very strong. To begin with, Celine and I found ourselves in the company of many distinguished people. In fact, there were scarcely any others in the pilgrimage, but, far from being dazzled thereby, titles seemed to us but a vapor of smoke. Joel 2 verse 19 and I understood the words of the imitation, Be not solicitous for the shadow of a great name. Imitation of Christ 3, 26, 2. And I understood that true greatness is not found in a name, but in the soul. The prophet Isaiah says, The Lord shall call his servants by another name. Isaiah 65, verse 15. And we read in St. John, To him that overcometh I will give a white counter and on the counter a new name written which no man knoweth but he that receiveth it. Apocalypse 2, verse 17. In heaven, therefore, we shall know our titles of nobility, and then shall every man have praise from God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. And he who on earth chose to be poorest and least known for love of his Savior, he will be the first, the noblest, and the richest. The second thing I learnt had to do with priests. Up to this time I had not understood the chief aim of the Carmelite reform. To pray for sinners delighted me. To pray for priests, whose souls seemed pure as crystal, that indeed astonished me. But in Italy I realized my vocation, and even so long a journey was a small price to pay for such valuable knowledge. During that month I met with many holy priests, and yet I saw that even though the sublime dignity of priesthood raises them higher than the angels, they are still but weak and imperfect men. And so if holy priests, whom our Lord and the gospel calls the salt of the earth, have need of our prayers, what must we think of the lukewarm? Has not our Lord said, If the salt lose its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Matthew 5, verse 13. Oh, dear mother, how beautiful is our vocation! We Carmelites are called to preserve the salt of the earth. We offer our prayers and sacrifices for the apostles of the Lord. We ourselves ought to be their apostles, while they, by word and example, are preaching the gospel to our brethren. Have we not a glorious mission to fulfill? But I must say no more, for I feel that on this subject my pen would run on forever. Now let me describe my journey in some detail. At three o'clock in the morning on November 4, we passed through the silent streets. Lisieux still lay shrouded in the darkness of night. I felt that I was going out into the unknown, and that great things were awaiting me in Rome. When we reached Paris, Papa took us to see all the sights. For me there was but one, Our Lady of Victories. 
I can never tell you what I felt at her shrine. The graces Our Lady granted me were like those of my first communion day. I was filled with peace and happiness. In this holy spot the Blessed Virgin, my mother, told me plainly that it was really she who had smiled on me and cured me. With intense fervor I entreated her to keep me always, and to realize my heart's desire by hiding me under her spotless mantle, and I also asked her to remove from me every occasion of sin. I was well aware that during this journey I should come across things that might disturb me, knowing nothing of evil. I feared I might discover it. As yet I had not experienced that to the pure all things are pure. Titus 1 verse 15 That a simple and upright soul does not see evil in anything, because evil only exists in impure hearts and not in inanimate objects. I prayed specially to St. Joseph to watch over me. From my childhood, devotion to him has been interwoven with my love for our Blessed Lady. Every day I said the prayer beginning, St. Joseph, Father and Protector of Virgins. So I felt I was well protected and quite safe from danger. We left Paris on November 7, after our solemn consecration to the Sacred Heart in the Basilica of Montmartre. Footnote. Montmartre, the Mount of Martyrs is the hill whereon St. Denis, Apostle and Bishop of Paris, was martyred with his two companions in the third century. It was a famous place of pilgrimage in medieval times. And here St. Ignatius and the first Jesuits took their vows. Under the presidency of Marshal McMahon, the erection of the well-known basilica was voted in 1873 by the French Chamber of Deputies as a national act of reparation to the Sacred Heart. Editor. End footnote. Each compartment of the train was named after a saint, and the selection was made in honor of some priest occupying it, his own patron or that of his parish being chosen. But in the presence of all the pilgrims, our compartment was named after St. Martin. My father, deeply touched by this compliment, went at once to thank Monsignor Legu, Vicar General of Countenances and Director of the Pilgrimage. From this onwards he was often called Monsieur St. Martin. Father Reveroni watched my behavior closely. I could tell that he was doing so. At table, if I were not opposite to him, he would lean forward to look at me and listen to what I was saying. I think he must have been satisfied with his investigations, for, towards the end of the journey, he seemed more favorably disposed. I say towards the end, for in Rome he was far from being my advocate, as I will tell you presently. Still, I would not have it thought he deceived me in any way by falling short of the good will he had shown me at Bayeux. On the contrary, I am sure that he always felt kindly towards me, and that if he opposed my wishes, it was only to put me to the test. On our way into Italy, we passed through Switzerland, with its high mountains, their snowy peaks lost in the clouds, its rushing torrents, and its deep valleys filled with giant ferns and purple heather. Great good was wrought in my soul by these beauties of nature so abundantly scattered abroad. They lifted it to him who had been pleased to lavish such masterpieces upon this transient earth. Sometimes we were high up the mountainside, while at our feet an unfathomable abyss seemed ready to engulf us. A little later we were passing through a charming village with its cottages and graceful belfry, above which light fleecy clouds floated lazily. Farther on a great lake with its blue waters, so calm and clear, would blend with the glowing splendor of the setting sun. I cannot tell you how deeply I was impressed with this scenery so full of poetry and grandeur. It was a foretaste of the wonders of heaven. 
then the thought of religious life would come before me as it really is with its constraints and its little daily sacrifices made in secret i understood how easily one might become wrapped in self and forget the sublime end of one's vocation and i thought later on when the time of trial comes when i am enclosed in the carmel and shall only be able to see a little bit of sky i will remember this day and it will encourage me i will make light of my own small interests by thinking of the greatness and majesty of god i will love him alone and will not be so foolish as to attach myself to the fleeting trifles of this world now that my heart has had a glimpse of what is reserved for those who love him after having contemplated the works of god i turned next to admire those of his creatures milan was the first italian town we visited and we carefully studied its cathedral of white marble adorned with countless statues Celine and i left the timid ones who hid their faces in fear after climbing to the first stage and following the bolder pilgrims we reached the top from whence we viewed the city below when we came down we started on the first of our expeditions these lasted the whole month of the pilgrimage and quite cured me of a desire to be always lazily riding in a carriage the campo santo cemetery charmed us the whole vast enclosure is covered with marble statues so exquisitely carved as to be lifelike and placed with an apparent negligence that only enhances their charm you feel almost tempted to console the imaginary personages that surround you their expression so exactly portrays a calm and christian sorrow and what works of art here is a child putting flowers on its father's grave one forgets how solid is marble the delicate petals appear to slip through its fingers sometimes the light veils of the widows and the ribbons of the young girls seem floating on the breeze we could not find words to express our admiration but an old gentleman who followed us everywhere regretting no doubt his inability to share our sentiments said in a tone of ill temper oh what enthusiasts these french people are and yet he also was french i think the poor man would have done better to stay at home instead of enjoying the journey he was always grumbling nothing pleased him neither cities hotels people nor anything else my father whose disposition was the exact opposite was quite content no matter what happened and tried to cheer our friend offering him his place in the carriage or elsewhere and with his wonted goodness encouraging him to look at the bright side of things but nothing could cheer him how many different kinds of people we saw and how interesting it is to study the world when one is just about to leave it in venice the scene changed completely instead of the bustle of a large city silence reigned broken only by the lapping of the waters and the cries of the gondoliers as they plied their oars it is a city full of charm but full of sadness even the palace of the doges splendid though it be is sad we walk through halls whose vaulted roofs have long since ceased to re-echo the voices of the governors in their sentences of life and death its dark dungeons are no longer a living tomb for unfortunate prisoners to pine within while visiting these dreadful prisons i fancy myself in the times of the martyrs and gladly would i have chosen this sombre abode for my dwelling if there had been any question of professing my faith presently the guide's voice roused me from my reverie and i crossed the bridge of sighs so called because of the sighs uttered by the wretched prisoners as they passed from their dungeons to sentence and to death after leaving venice we visited padua and there venerated the relic of saint anthony's tongue then bologna where st catherine's body rests her face still bears the impress of the kiss bestowed on her by the infant jesus 
I was indeed happy when on the way to Loretto, Our Lady had chosen an ideal spot in which to place her holy house. Everything is poor, simple, and primitive. The women still wear the graceful dress of the country, and have not, as in the large towns, adopted the modern Paris fashions. I found Loretto enchanting, and what shall I say of the holy house? I was overwhelmed with emotion when I realized that I was under the very roof that had sheltered the holy family. I gazed on the same walls our Lord had looked on. I trod the ground once moistened with the sweat of St. Joseph's toil, and saw the little chamber of the Annunciation, where the Blessed Virgin Mary held Jesus in her arms after she had borne him there in her virginal womb. I even put my rosary into the little porringer used by the Divine Child. How sweet those memories! But our greatest joy was to receive Jesus in his own house, and thus become his living temple in the very place which he had honored by his divine presence. According to Roman custom, the Blessed Sacrament is reserved at one altar in each church, and there only is it given to the faithful. At Loretto, this altar was in the Basilica, which is built round the Holy House, enclosing it as a precious stone might be enclosed in a casket of white marble. The exterior mattered little to us, it was in the diamond itself that we wished to receive the bread of angels. My father, with his habitual gentleness, followed the other pilgrims, but his daughters, less easily satisfied, went towards the holy house. God favored us, for a priest was on the point of celebrating Mass. We told him of our great wish, and he immediately asked for two hosts, which he placed on the paten. You may picture, dear mother, the ecstatic happiness of that communion. No words can describe it. What will be our joy when we communicate eternally in the dwelling of the King of Heaven? It will be undimmed by the grief of parting, and will know no end. His house will be ours for all eternity, and there will be no need to covet fragments from the walls hallowed by the Divine Presence. He will not give us His earthly home. He only shows it to us to make us love poverty and the hidden life. What He has in store for us is the palace of His glory where we shall no longer see him veiled under the form of a child or the appearance of bread, but as he is, in the brightness of his infinite beauty. Now I am going to tell you about Rome. Rome, where I thought to find comfort and where I found the cross. It was night when we arrived. I was asleep and was awakened by the porters calling, Roma! The pilgrims caught up the cry and repeated, Roma! Roma! Then I knew it was not a dream. I was really in Rome. Our first day, and perhaps the most enjoyable, was spent outside the walls. There, everything retains its stamp of antiquity. Whilst in Rome, with its hotels and shops, one might fancy oneself in Paris. This drive in the Roman Campania has left a specially delightful impression on my mind. How shall I describe the feelings which thrilled me when I gazed on the Colosseum? At last I saw the arena where so many martyrs had shed their blood for Christ. My first impulse was to kiss the ground sanctified by their glorious combats. But what a disappointment! The soil has been raised, and the real arena is now buried at the depth of about twenty-six feet. As the result of excavations, the center is nothing but a mass of rubbish, and an insurmountable barrier guards the entrance. In any case, no one dare penetrate into the midst of these dangerous ruins. But was it possible to be in Rome and not go down into the real Colosseum? No, indeed! And I no longer listened to the guide's explanations. One thought only filled my mind. I must reach the arena. We are told in the Gospel that St. Mary Magdalene remained close to the sepulchre and stooped down constantly to look in. She was rewarded by seeing two angels, 
So, like her, I kept stooping down, and I saw, not two angels, but what I was in search of. I uttered a cry of joy and called out to my sister, Come, follow me, we shall be able to get through. We hurried on at once, scrambling over the ruins which crumbled under our feet. Papa, aghast at our boldness, called out to us, but we did not hear. As the warriors of old felt their courage grow in face of peril, so our joy increased in proportion to the fatigue and danger we had to face to attain the object of our desires. Celine, more foreseeing than I, had listened to the guide. She remembered that he had pointed out a particular stone marked with a cross, and had told us it was the place where the martyrs had fought the good fight. She set to work to find it, and having done so, we threw ourselves on our knees on this sacred ground. Our souls united in one and the same prayer. My heart beat violently when I pressed my lips to the dust reddened with the blood of the early Christians. I begged for the grace to be a martyr for Jesus, and I felt in the depths of my heart that my prayer was heard. All this took but a short time. After collecting some stones, we approached the walls once more to face the danger. We were so happy that Papa had not the heart to scold us, and I could see that he was proud of our courage. From the Colosseum we went to the catacombs, and there Celine and I laid ourselves down in what had once been the tomb of St. Cecilia, and took some of the earth sanctified by her holy remains. Before our journey to Rome I had not felt any special devotion to St. Cecilia, but on visiting the house where she was martyred, and hearing her proclaimed Queen of Harmony, because of the sweet song she sang in her heart to her divine spouse, I felt more than devotion towards her. It was real love as for a friend. She became my chosen patroness, and the keeper of all my secrets. Her abandonment to God and her boundless confidence delighted me beyond measure. They were so great that they enabled her to make souls pure which had never till then desired aught but earthly pleasures. St. Cecilia is like the spouse in the canticles. I find in her the scriptural choir in an armed camp. Footnote. Cross-reference Canticle 7, verse 1. and footnote. Her life was one melodious song in the midst of the greatest trials, and this is not strange, because we read that the book of the Holy Gospels lay ever on her heart. Footnote. Office of St. Cecilia. and footnote. While in her heart reposed the spouse of virgins, our visit to the church of St. Agnes was also very delightful. I tried, but without success, to obtain a relic to take back to my little mother, Sister Agnes of Jesus. Men refused me, but God himself came to my aid. A little bit of red marble, from an ancient mosaic dating back to the time of the sweet martyr, fell as my feet. Was this not touching? St. Agnes herself gave me a keepsake from her house. We spent six days in visiting the great wonders in Rome, and on the seventh saw the greatest of all, Leo the Thirteenth. I longed for, yet dreaded, that day, for on it depended my vocation. I had received no answer from the bishop of Bayeux, and so the Holy Father's permission was my one and only hope. But in order to obtain this permission, I had first to ask it. The mere thought made me tremble, for I must dare speak to the Pope, and that in the presence of many cardinals, archbishops, and bishops. On Sunday morning, November 20, we went to the Vatican, and were taken to the Pope's private chapel. At eight o'clock we assisted at his Mass, during which his fervent piety, worthy of the Vicar of Christ, gave evidence that he was in truth the Holy Father. The Gospel for that day contained these touching words, Fear not, little flock, for it hath pleased your Father to give you a kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. My heart was filled with perfect confidence. 
No, I would not fear. I would trust that the kingdom of the Carmel would soon be mine. I did not think of those other words of our Lord. I dispose to you, as my Father hath disposed to me, a kingdom. Luke 22, verse 29. That is to say, I will give you crosses and trials, and thus will you become worthy to possess my kingdom. If you desire to sit on his right hand, you must drink the chalice which he has drunk himself. Footnote. Cross-reference Matthew 20, verse 22. End footnote. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and so to enter into his glory? Luke 24, verse 26. A mass of thanksgiving followed, and then the audience began. Leo the Thirteenth, whose cassock and cape were of white, was seated on a raised chair, and round him were grouped various dignitaries of the church. According to custom, each visitor knelt in turn and kissed, first the foot and next the hand of the venerable pontiff, and finally received his blessing. Then two of the noble guards signed to the pilgrim that he must rise and pass on to the adjoining room to make way for those who followed. No one uttered a word, but I was firmly determined to speak, when suddenly the vicar general of Bayou, Father Reveroni, who was standing at the Pope's right hand, told us in a loud voice that he absolutely forbade anyone to address the Holy Father. My heart beat fast. I turned to Celine, mutely inquiring what I should do. Speak, she said. The next moment I found myself on my knees before the Holy Father. I kissed his foot and he held out his hand. Then raising my eyes, which were filled with tears, I said entreatingly, Holy Father, I have a great favor to ask you. At once he bent towards me till his face almost touched mine, and his piercing black eyes seemed to read my very soul. Holy Father, I repeated, in honor of your jubilee, will you allow me to enter the Carmel when I am fifteen? The vicar general, surprised and displeased, said quickly, Holy Father, this is a child who desires to become a Carmelite, but the superiors of the Carmel are looking into the matter. Well, my child, said His Holiness, do whatever the superiors decide. Clasping my hands and resting them on his knee, I made a final effort. Holy Father, if only you say yes, everyone else would agree. He looked at me fixedly and said clearly and emphatically, Well, well, you will enter if it is God's will. I was going to speak again when the noble guards motioned to me. As I paid little attention, they came forward, the vicar general with them, for I was still kneeling before the Pope with my hands resting on his knee. Just as I was forced to rise, the dear Holy Father gently placed his hand on my lips, then lifted it to bless me, letting his eyes follow me for quite a long time. My father was much distressed to find me coming from the audience in tears. He had passed out before me, and so did not know anything about my request. The vicar general had shown him unusual kindness, presenting him to Leo the Thirteenth as the father of two Carmelites. The sovereign pontiff, as a special sign of benevolence, had placed his hand on his head, thus appearing in the name of Christ himself to mark him with a mysterious seal. But now that his father of four Carmelites is in heaven, it is no longer the hand of Christ's vicar which rests on his brow, prophesying his martyrdom. It is the hand of the spouse of virgins, of the king of heaven, and this divine hand will never be taken away from the head which it has blessed. This trial was indeed a heavy one, but I must admit that in spite of my tears I felt a deep inward peace, for I had made every effort in my power to respond to the appeal of my divine master. This peace, however, dwelt in the depths of my soul. On the surface all was bitterness, and Jesus was silent. Absent, it would seem, for nothing revealed that he was there. 
on that day too the sun dared not shine and the beautiful blue sky of italy hidden by dark clouds mingled its tears with mine all was at an end my journey had no further charm for me since it had failed in its object it is true the holy father's words you will enter if it is god's will should have consoled me they were indeed a prophecy in spite of all these obstacles what god in his goodness willed has come to pass he has not allowed his creatures to do what they will but only what he wills some time before this took place i had offered myself to the child jesus to be his little plaything i told him not to treat me like one of those precious toys which children only look at and dare not touch but to treat me like a little ball of no value that could be thrown on the ground kicked about pierced left in a corner or pressed to his heart just as it might please him in a word i wished to amuse the holy child and to let him play with me as he fancied here indeed he was answering my prayer in rome jesus pierced his little plaything he wanted to see what was inside and when satisfied he let it drop and went to sleep what was he doing during his sweet slumber and what became of the ball thus cast on one side he dreamed that he was still at play that he took it up and threw it down that he rolled it far away but at last he pressed it to his heart nor did he allow it again to slip from his tiny hand dear mother you can imagine the sadness of the little ball lying neglected on the ground and yet it continued to hope against hope after our audience my father went to call on brother simeon the founder and director of st joseph's college and there he met father reveroni he reproached him gently for not having helped me in my difficult task and told the whole story to brother simeon the good old man listened with much interest and even made notes saying with evident feeling this kind of thing is not seen in italy the next day we started for naples and pompeii vesuvius did us the honor of emitting from its crater a thick volume of smoke accompanied by numerous loud reports the traces of the devastation of pompeii are terrifying they show forth the power of god he looketh upon the earth and maketh it tremble he toucheth the mountains and they smoke i should like to have wandered alone among its ruins meditating on the instability of human things but such solitude was not to be thought of at naples we made an expedition to the monastery of san martino it crowns a high hill overlooking the whole city on the way back the horses took the bit in their teeth and it is solely to our guardian angels that i attribute our safe return to the splendid hotel this word splendid is not too strong to describe it in fact during the whole journey we stayed only at the most expansive hotels i had never been surrounded by such luxury but it is indeed a true saying that riches do not make happiness i should have been a thousand times more contented under a thatched roof with the hope of entering the carmel than i was amid marble staircases gilded ceilings and silken hangings with my heart full of sorrow i realized thoroughly that joy is not found in the things which surround us but lives only in the soul one could possess it as well in an obscure prison as in the palace of a king and so now i am happier at the carmel in the midst of trials within and without than i was in the world where i had everything i wanted and above all the joys of a happy home although i felt heavy of heart outwardly i was as usual for i thought no one had any knowledge of my petition to the pope i was mistaken one day when the other pilgrims had gone to the refreshment room and Celine and i were alone monsignor legue came to the door of the carriage he looked at me attentively and smiling said well how is our little carmelite this showed me that my secret was known to all the pilgrims and i gathered it too 
from their kindly looks, but happily no one spoke to me on the subject. At Assisi I had a little adventure. While visiting the places sanctified by the virtues of St. Francis and St. Clair, I lost the buckle of my belt in the monastery. It took me some time to find it and put it back in place, and when I reached the door all the carriages had started except one. That belonged to the Vicar General of Bayou. Should I run after those which were no longer in sight, and so perhaps miss the train, or should I beg for a seat in the carriage of Father Reveroni? I decided that this was the wiser plan. I tried to hide my extreme embarrassment and explain things. He was placed in a difficulty himself, for all the seats were occupied, but one of the party promptly gave me his place and sat by the driver. I felt like a squirrel caught in a snare. I was ill at ease in the midst of these great people, and I had to sit face to face with the most formidable of all. He was exceedingly kind, however, and now and then interrupted his conversation to talk to me about the Carmel, and promised that he would do all in his power to realize my desire of entering at fifteen. This meeting was like balm to my wounds, though it did not prevent me from suffering. I had now lost all trust in creatures and could only lean on God himself, and yet my distress did not hinder me from taking a deep interest in the holy places we visited. In Florence we saw the shrine of St. Mary Magdalene at Pazzi, in the choir of the Carmelite Church. All the pilgrims wanted to touch the saint's tomb with their rosaries, but my hand was the only one small enough to pass through the grating. So I was deputed for this important and lengthy task, and I did it with pride. It was not the first time I had obtained special favors. One day at Santa Croce in Rome, we venerated the relics of the true cross, together with two of the thorns and one of the sacred nails. I wanted to examine them closely, so I remained behind, and when the monk in charge was going to replace them on the altar, I asked if I might touch the precious treasures. He said I might do so, but was doubtful if I should succeed. However, I put my little finger into one of the openings of the reliquary, and was able to touch the sacred nail once hallowed by the blood of our Savior. You see, I behaved towards him like a child who thinks it may do as it pleases and looks on its father's treasures as its own. Having passed through Pisa and Genoa, we came back to France by one of the loveliest routes. At times we were close to the sea, and one day during a storm it seemed as though the waves would reach the train. Further on we traveled through plains covered with orange trees, olives, and feathery palms, while at night the numerous seaports twinkled with lights and stars came out in the deep blue sky. But I watched the fairy picture fade away from my eyes without any regret. My heart was set elsewhere. My father proposed to take me to Jerusalem, but in spite of the natural wish I had to visit the places sanctified by our Lord's footsteps, I was weary of earthly pilgrimages and only longed for the beauties of heaven. In order to win these beauties for souls, I wanted to become a prisoner as quickly as possible. I felt that I must suffer and struggle still more before the gates of my blessed prison would open, yet my trust in God did not grow less, and I still hoped to enter at Christmas. We had hardly reached home when I paid a visit to the Carmel. You must remember well that interview, dear mother. I left myself entirely in your hands, for I had exhausted all my resources. You told me to write to the bishop and remind him of his promise. I obeyed at once, and as soon as my letter was posted, I felt I should obtain the coveted permission without any delay. Alas, each day brought fresh disappointments. The beautiful feast of Christmas dawned. Still, Jesus slept. He left his little ball on the ground without even glancing that way. This was indeed a sore trial, but our Lord, whose heart is always watching, 
taught me that he granted miracles to those whose faith is small as a grain of mustard seed in the hope of strengthening this slender faith whilst for his intimate friends for his mother he did not work miracles till he had proved their faith did he not permit lazarus to die even though mary and martha had sent word that he was sick and at the marriage feast of cana when our lady asked her divine son to aid the master of the house did he not answer that his hour had not yet come but after the trial what a reward water is changed into wine and lazarus rises from the dead in this way did my beloved act with his little therese after he had tried her for a long time he granted all her desires for my new year's gift of eighteen eighty eight jesus again gave me his cross you told me dear mother that you had had the bishop's answer since december twenty eight the feast of holy innocence that he authorized my immediate entry into the carmel but that nevertheless you had decided not to open its doors till after lent i could not restrain my tears at the thought of such a long delay this trial affected me in a special manner for i felt my earthly ties were severed and yet the ark in its turn refused to admit the poor little dove how did these three months pass they were fruitful in sufferings and still more so in other graces at first the thought came into my mind that i would not put any extra restraint on myself i would lead a life somewhat less strictly ordered than was my custom but our lord made me understand the benefit i might derive from this time he had granted me and i then resolved to give myself up to a more serious and mortified life when i say mortified i do not mean that i imitated the penances of the saints far from resembling those beautiful souls who have practiced all sorts of mortifications from their infancy i made mine consist in simply checking my inclinations keeping back an impatient answer doing little services to those around me without setting store thereby and a hundred other things of the kind by practicing these trifles i prepared myself to become the spouse of jesus and i can never tell you mother how much the added delay helped me to grow in abandonment in humility and in other virtues End of chapter 6